Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this week's show, we are fortunate to bring on Jeff Richards, managing partner at GGV Capital. Founded in 2000, GGV manages nearly $10 billion in assets and invests across stages in both the U.S. and Asia, and has invested in companies such as Airbnb, Wish, Opendoor, and Grab. This was a great conversation as Jeff has been both on the founder and investor side and spent the last 14 years at GGV where he's had a front row seat to the incredible evolution of the firm. During our chat, Jeff gave us some great insights on the markets today, the challenges of growing a firm, and how the current geopolitical tensions may affect international investing in the future. Now, without further ado, let's get right into the episode, which I hope you'll enjoy. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily, so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast, with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. Hey, Jeff, it's good to see you. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good on this Friday. And um, I've been excited about this conversation because you're one of the few people that I run across that thinks both about the public markets, the private markets. You've been in the industry for a long time. I think it's been 25 years uh, in the tech industry. But let's go back in time and how you got into venture in the first place, which I think you started at GGV back in 2008. Yeah, I... uh... It's funny, I moved to San Francisco in 1995, which was really, you know, a crazy time to move to SF. It was the beginning of the dot-com bubble and you had Netscape and Yahoo had just gone public, Amazon. It was really a fun time to move here, but it was it was an unknown. Nobody knew what was coming. Um, and I worked at PwC for three years in consulting, which was amazing. Got to work in the US, uh, Latin America, Asia, spent six months in Hong Kong. So really an eye-opening experience for me at a young age. And then in 1997, I really I saw what was happening with the internet and, and, and also in telecom, which is a really hot sector at the time. And I, I remember I went to the partner I worked with and I said, I really, I have to go get into this. And at the time, you know, I was working in a consulting firm where we had to wear a suit and tie to work every day. We, we weren't even allowed to have internet access on our desktops because it was considered a security risk. And I just was like, man, this whole industry is going to pass me by if I don't, if I don't leave and go do this. I was 25 at the time. So I left, started a software company in, in uh, 1997 uh, called Quantum Shift. It was kind of at the intersection of software and telecom. And back then, companies weren't called SaaS. They were called ASP, which was Application Service Provider, which meant you really... The big difference then was you built and hosted your own software. And so it was very expensive to build these companies back in the day. And we ended up raising $125 million for that business, which, you know, in today's dollars would probably be like raising three or 400. So it, it was a lot of money um, and it was an expensive business to build. We grew it from zero to 30 million in revenue in three years and all was going well, of course, until 2000 hit and the majority of our customers were tech companies and we saw about half our revenue eviscerated in about six months. It was just absolutely brutal. And, you know, it was in hindsight for me, that five-year window between 25 and 30, you know, starting a company in 97. And then I ended up leaving in 2002, the company ended up getting sold uh, kind of in parts, but it was like, it was a pretty amazing five-year experience uh, for somebody at a young age to have. And I left, got married, uh, and started my second company in 2003 and kind of did the opposite. I raised I raised a million dollars from uh, friends and family and then actually the founder of T-Mobile, John Stanton, who was amazing, and Craig Bamba, who had been the CFO there. And we sold the company about 18 months later to VeriSign for, uh, for $15 million. And my partner, Ryan, and I owned about 75% of it. So it was a great outcome for us, and it was kind of the opposite of what we had done before, but we were able to apply some of the things we had learned or I had learned in my prior company. And then I had a great experience. I, 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 we were acquired by VeriSign. I ended up, uh, the, the individual that ended up buying my company was a guy named Mark McLaughlin, 
who went on to be CEO of Palo Alto Networks. He went on to be CEO of Verisign and then CEO of Palo Alto Networks, but just got to work with an amazing group of people. I worked with Mark. I got to work with Charles Myers, who left Verisign and went on to become CEO of Equinix. A lot of folks that went on to Equinix, people that are at ServiceNow and now at Snowflake and John Donovan, who went on to be CTO of AT&T. So, you know, one just side note there, I always tell people, hey, these bless these acquisitions can be a much bigger opportunity than you realize, not just financially, but career-wise. I mean, I made amazing connections in that. In that, I was I had a two-year deal to stay at Verisign, ended up staying for three years. But anyways, back to how I ended up in venture, I had pitched uh, Glenn Solomon, who was a partner at a firm called Partech back in 2003 on my second company. And he politely turned me down, but we, we kept in touch. And in, I think it was 2000, early 2007, he called me and said, hey, you know, I know you're at VeriSign and, and probably you're going to spin out and do something in a year or two and love to just reconnect. And we connect, reconnected. He had then joined uh, GGV uh, as a partner in 2005, I think, or six, and just got to know him and got to know some of the members of the firm and, and folks that were leading and in investing and doing various things at GGV and was just super impressed with the firm and its global perspective at the time, you know, in 2007, 2008. There weren't very many firms that were investing globally, and GGV was, you know, its original office actually was in Singapore and Southeast Asia, but had been investing in Southeast Asia and China and the U.S. Um, really since 2000. And so I just, you know, having spent time in Hong Kong, I had been to China in 2003 and 2005, and I was just really convinced that emerging markets like China and India were, were going to be a fascinating place to invest and ended up joining GGV in May of 2008. And... Uh, <laughs> I remember at the time I told my wife I was going to do it for two years, kind of learn the other side of the table, how venture worked, and then go start another company. And, uh, you know, 15 years later, I'm, I'm still here. And it's been uh, it's been an amazing ride. It's a, it's a great group of people. And I'm, I'm really proud of what we've built. But, uh, you know, not also on not to go unnoticed, I joined in May of 08. And then the great financial crisis promptly hit. So that was kind of a crazy time to get into venture. But in hindsight, it was a was a fantastic time to join. Well, I was going to comment on your impeccable timing, both as an entrepreneur at the end of the uh, the, the dot com you know bubble, and then of course joining venture when the global financial crisis was just kicking off. And interesting, I started my career in venture in '99, so it was at the tail tail end of the dot com bubble, and then I moved to the private funds group at the at the bank that I was at, actually at the end of 2008. So you and I might be uh, kindred <laughs> spirits in, in making our career moves. At times where the markets are in disarray, but you've been now at, at GGV for 15 years, going on 15 years, and GGV has had a lot of components in terms of evolving as an organization today, 9 billion plus in AUM, you have over 100 employees, and when you joined, it was actually a pretty small niche outfit, right? Tell us a little bit about the growth and scale because we do see so many firms now scaling, but a lot of it happened over the last, let's say, half decade. What went into that scale? And, and maybe take us inside baseball on some of the growing pains as you go from a small outfit to one that you know really is uh, investing at scale. Yeah, there are a number of things that I share with folks who are building new firms today. And I'm, I'm a personal LP in a number of early stage funds, um, which... You know, obviously, it's great for our business to be investing with folks that are building new firms, particularly folks that are investing at the seed stage. One is, you know, when I joined GGV in 2008, it was a $600 million fund predominantly focused on growth stage investing, so Series C and D. And one of the hallmarks of GGV from day one has been that the, the partners in the firm get together every 90 days in person, which most firms don't do that. And it's a three-day effort. We've done it since the beginning of the firm. Those three days are generally comprised of a day on portfolio. So we literally go through the entire portfolio every 90 days, a day on people and organization and team, and a day on strategy. So people will bring different ideas and topics and concepts to the, to the group. And I think it's just an incredible way of sort of galvanizing people about, you know, what are we doing? How are we doing it? What do we have to do to be successful throughout the year and, and, and in the next 90 days? And also building a lot of trust among the team. You know, if you think about that partner group plus our CFO and a few other folks being involved in those conversations, you build a lot of openness and trust. There's no hiding the ball when you're going through the portfolio every 90 days. And I think that's really been one of the hallmarks to our success and helped us avoid some of the growing pains that I think maybe um, other, other firms have had. We, we've still had our share, believe me. 
So that's one thing that I think has really been a hallmark. Obviously, during COVID, we've had to do those virtually, but you know, literally a global team getting together every 90 days in a different location has been has been one of the hallmarks of our firm and I think really helped us build the kind of culture and team that we wanted to build. The second thing was, you know, in 2000, it was probably 2011 or 12, you may remember, venture was really out of favor. Uh, coming out of the great financial crisis, a lot of LPs had what's called the denominator effect where their public positions had gone down so dramatically that all of a sudden they looked like they were way over allocated to venture. And venture returns as of kind of 09, 010, 11 weren't that stellar for the prior decade. So there was a lot of negativity and skepticism of venture. Now it's amazing in hindsight because the next decade was, was an incredible decade for venture. But we really had to come together as a team, and we had a relatively small team at that time. I think probably the entire firm was 20 people, maybe 25 people, and decide who we wanted to be. You know, did we want to did we want to get bigger? Did we want to expand our geographic presence? Did we want to try and invest earlier? What were we seeing in the market that would maybe force us to to do things differently? And where did we want to invest in terms of headcount and team members? And I remember in 2011, we made a very conscious decision to say, look, we want to we want to build bigger funds so that we can invest across all stages, but we want to keep that small team feel. We want to keep a very tight partnership that is very committed and trusts each other. We don't want to be in a room with 30 people trying to make decisions. And you know, if I look at where we are today, that's been a very intentional path that we followed. We, we, have, um, we have a group of younger partners that we're bringing up, but we generally have six MDs that run the firm. And the other part of that that was important was being able to tell that story in a coherent way to our LPs and, and not just look like we were opportunistically raising larger funds, but to say to them, hey, we are raising larger funds, here's why, and here's the team that we're building to do that. And so, you know, I remember when Hans joined in 2014, he really pushed hard to say, look, you know, I think we need to be investing earlier. We need to have a dedicated fund to invest in seed and A and, and even you know early B, early series B. And we created our discovery fund in, I think it was 2014 or it was about 2015, which you know today is a $650 million fund that is just for seed and A. So companies that are valued sub 100 million, we have a giant pool of capital just for those companies. And that started back in 2015. At the same time, we started to build a portfolio services team. So we did not have anybody doing talent. We, we had a marketing, somebody that was advising us on marketing, but really didn't have an organization that was doing talent and BD and marketing and things like that. Today, that group is over 30 people around the world. And so it, if you look at the timeline, we said, we need to invest earlier. We're going to create larger funds to be a multi-stage firm. Let's go build the team to do that. And, and we built that team today, which I think is 30 or 35 people. And then there's a lot that comes along with that, right? Our finance, legal, um, HR team is is probably 30, 35 people. We have, uh, I think today we have six people doing investor relations. So they work with our LPs, which is another component that I advise a lot of early stage funds is as soon as you can build a team focused on IR. Because one thing I learned in my early days in venture, people always ask me, what did you learn that you didn't know before? And certainly one of the big learnings when you join a big venture firm is how important those LP relationships are. They're really the, the gasoline that fuels the engine that, that makes venture capital go. And so building those strong relationships, you know, having open and honest conversations with them about your strategy and your intent and the team building that you're doing has been a key part of our success as well. One of the things that you brought up is, you know, as you grow, you have to think differently about the organization in terms of the people probably from an investing standpoint, the calculus is a lot different investing out of a $250 million fund at versus now, you know, the last fund I think was two and a half billion. What were some of the learnings that you had as you did go up that curve, both in terms of people management to ensure that this culture of transparency, openness was continue to be fostered, but also just from an investing standpoint, what were the, the mental model changes that you had to make as you scaled? Well, let me take the people and culture side of it first, because it's a, a piece of the puzzle that we've spent a lot of time on. We've been very intentional about, and um, you know, we have values, we have mission, we have a mission. Every two years, we get everybody in the firm together for a big event, uh, and we have a global team. So that's not easy to do. We have very high engagement. You know, we do all hands in the U.S. every month. 
So there's a lot of communication and, and, and a lot that goes into that. We do performance reviews, obviously, throughout the year. I mean, we spend, you know, November, December, January in our firm, we spend a tremendous amount of time doing performance reviews and compensation and, and trying to, to make it so that people feel like we're doing things in a fair and equitable way, which, as you know, in our industry is not generally the model. <laughs> um, but I think it's one of the reasons why we've been able to attract a really talented team and, and uh, you know, hopefully those folks are very happy um, and see huge career opportunities ahead of them because it's a big part of what we try to, to make happen. I think on the investing side, one of the things that's so amazing about venture is you bring together these different people with different backgrounds and personalities and ideas and expertise, and you throw them all into a pot and say, gosh, we hope they all get along and, and, and use this pot of money effectively and generate big returns. And it's one of the beautiful things about venture is that you bring all these people with different ideas together, but it also is what makes it hard because you've got people working on ideas and theses and and finding founders and categories that the other partners may know nothing about. And I think one of the things that I am, am incredibly appreciative about where we are today is the level of trust that we've built on our investment team. And our investment team today is about 35, somewhere between 35 and 40 people worldwide. But there's a very high degree of trust because first of all, the GPs have been working together for a decade plus. You know, we know where the mistakes are that we've made, and we can be very open and honest about the mistakes we've made. And, and then when people have real conviction around an investment opportunity or a founder that we want to double down on, for example, there's a lot of trust that they've done their homework, they've done their research, they've vetted the opportunity. And the younger folks that are coming up, our principals, our associates, our junior partners, they kind of see those methodologies, they see the processes, they see how you build that conviction, how you build those personal relationships with the founders. And, you know, we've tried to emulate what the best firms have done, you know, Sequoia and others that we all admire for the way that they've built a franchise and a structure that enables them to be successful year after year. And we're continuously looking to learn and get better, right? We continuously add new things to our process, new things to our model, new ideas. And then, you know, the other part of it is I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, you, you know, the Midas list just came out and there were two firms that had four people ranked in the top 50. That was uh, GGV and Sequoia. And I'm just incredibly proud of you know, Hans and Jenny and Glenn and Jishun and uh, our other partner, Eric, it's just a, it's a, it's a really good team that I think all believes we're trying to do the right thing. And we've certainly taken our lumps and made our mistakes over the years. And, but when you can be honest and open about those and transparent, not only with each other, but also with your LPs, I think that's how you build an enduring franchise. Cause inevitably every firm goes through a down, you know, right now, a lot of firms are dealing with, gosh, we took a lot of companies public in 20 and 21. We were all flying high. Things looked great. And now a lot of those names are down, you know, in some cases, 50 to 75%. And I think that's where your relationships with your LPs and your founders are going to be tested. Because when things get a little rough and a little choppy, how do people behave? Are they transparent or do they suddenly, you know, the 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 communication gets uh, less or you don't get those monthly financials or the board meetings get canceled or... So I, I think it's, um, you know, I hope that, and, and we saw this when COVID hit in Q1 of 2020, really a challenging time in our economy and for most founders. And we, you know, we saw what was happening on a global level. We were able to tackle it. We very quickly did a survey of all of our companies to understand which ones were well capitalized, which ones were in industries that were going to be hit hardest. We created a set of data that we shared with our LPs to say, hey, look, here's where we think we have the most exposure and the most risk. Here are the companies we're going to double down and bet more on. And I think we, you know, I hope we increase the level of trust with our LPs by doing that and saying, hey, look, these are the companies we believe are at risk, in some cases through no fault of their own, just because the industry they're in is getting crushed through a pandemic. Uh, and in, and the, I guess the best part of that was a lot of those companies came out of it, you know, they survived. They, in many cases, had to do layoffs or, or raise additional capital, but they came out of it stronger. And today, a lot of those companies are, are really doing well. I suspect a lot of your LPs, and, and given that you have a lot of institutions, are, are thinking a little bit about what to make of this market. And we've talked about past markets. Of course, 99, 2000 was a unique time where the bubble was really around the asset category of technology companies that were going public with really no fundamentals. And then 0809 was largely based on the real estate sector. 
and you're right, there was that denominator effect, and it was also coinciding with the Sequoia RIP, you know, Good Times memo that came out. You know, a lot of the returns were poor because, that, I mean, technology wasn't truly as horizontal as it is now. And of course, things like cloud computing made it so much cheaper, and you know, the iPhone that made mass distribution of software, you know, so capable. And, you know, one of the things that I wonder about today is where are we right now? You know, we had a massive downturn in the markets around Q1 of 2020. The Fed created policy that pumped a lot of liquidity back in the system by quantitative easing, as well as the fact that they cut interest rates to zero. Now that has reversed, we've seen the last six months, you know, at least public market companies, particularly the growth stocks, regress in value anywhere from 40 to 70% and sometimes even greater. Like, where are we right now? And are there any commonalities or differences between the past two cycles that you've seen? It's a great question. <laughs> and I think I should offer the disclaimer that I don't know. Um, I can tell you, obviously, we spend a lot of time discussing this internally and trying to pull in as many data points as we can, not only you know, from our portfolio companies, but also from our LPs and other folks that we trust to give us input and advice. And, you know, each of us talks to, I talk to a lot of folks that manage public funds, hedge funds, et cetera, to try and get their intel as well. It's a pretty unique time. You know, I'm not sure I, I was in Silicon Valley for 9-11. I was here for the great financial crisis. I haven't seen anything in my lifetime that's like Russia and Ukraine. I think the the impact of that, you know, we're still trying to figure out how that can impact food prices, fuel prices, how's it going to impact the geopolitical landscape. I think there's a lot to be figured out there we don't quite know yet. And then of course you have our own economy where we pumped 5 trillion dollars into post, you know, post COVID hitting um that was unprecedented. And I think we're seeing the impact of that in inflation, where we we have a very different labor picture today than we did two years ago. Um, and I think a lot of economists and politicians are still trying to figure it all out. And the Fed is obviously trying to play catch up a bit in terms of raising rates and trying to tamper down inflation. The thing that I've tried to convey, and we, we talked about this in our Monday meeting with our team, if you've been in tech for as long as I have and you have, there's a couple things you learn. One is don't panic. I remember in 08, 09, you know, I remember when 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 9-11 happened, you know, everybody was very scared. It was something at least I hadn't seen before. And it was a very scary time. But we got through it. And then the great financial crisis happened, which was really unprecedented because people thought the the American financial system might collapse. Way scarier, I would argue, than today. But we got through it. And on the other side, things were good. And I think the same thing will happen here. It's just a question of what is, how is that going to play out? And, and that's, you know, so I listened to a podcast the other day where you said, that's the fun thing about history. We don't know how it's going to play out going forward. The thing that I guess I take a lot of solace in with respect to our industry is there has never been more demand for or reliance on technology across industries. If you think about every major industry in the world, whether it's banking and finance, the auto industry, healthcare, Every one of those industries is being transformed by technology. And whether you take the stat that 40% of the employees at Goldman Sachs are now developers, or you know, you look at what's happening, any real estate, which was largely untouched by technology, and now we've got companies like Open Door and others that are coming in and changing the dynamics in that industry. The auto industry with what Tesla has done. I mean, it's taken a decade for other automakers to say, huh, maybe EVs are kind of important. But think about all the things that go along with that. It's self-driving cars and the charging networks and all these pieces, AI, all the pieces of the puzzle that go along with that rise of, of EVs and the focus on climate. So I think we will have, um, this year is going to be a challenging one because we don't, a lot of us don't know the answers on how it's going to play out. What we have tried to focus on with our companies is to say, hey, make sure you're well capitalized, make sure you're well run. And if you are, this is going to be a year where you can gain market share, grow at a healthy pace without the craziness of, I, I said, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen the show, We Crashed, it's the it's the Apple Plus or Apple TV Plus about the WeWork thing. You know, there's that episode where they're at summer camp. And I said to our team, guys, summer camp is over. Like that era is gone. We are not doing, 
you know, parties with um, bounce houses and that era is gone. And so the good news is for companies that want to execute and focus and not have summer camp, this is going to be a great year. They're going to be able to hire really talented people that want to, that believe in their mission and want to focus on the future. And the demand on the customer side, I think will continue to be strong. Could it come down a little bit if we, if we go into a recession? Sure. But I don't think there's any scenario where over the next five to 10 years, you don't see Fortune 1000 companies basically betting their future on technology. That's mobile, that's cloud, that's digital banking, you know, all these pieces of the puzzle that are so important. And, you know, that wasn't the case in 2000. It wasn't clear that every company had to bet on software. And it really wasn't even clear in 0809. I mean, 0809, we had just seen, you know, AWS had just launched. Uh, Stripe and Braintree had just launched. So the integration of payments and in, in digital was new. And the iPhone had just launched. And let's remember, the App Store didn't come around until 2010. So we're in an interesting scenario where, and by the way, let's remember, we exited last year. The the uh, unemployment was at, was at record low. I think it was 3.9%. And GDP growth was like 6%. So there's a scenario where the underlying fundamentals of our economy are actually really good. We just didn't understand all the implications of the things we did around the pandemic, the stimulus, et cetera. And that's just got to, we got to give that a little bit of time to work itself out. But I think the long run returns in technology are going to be super strong. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a heart surgeon looking for, for heart patients, but um, I, I just, a, a lot of the fundamentals remain very strong as long as you're a well-run company. I think the caveat to that is we are going to see some companies that aren't well-run that are going to have a really hard time raising capital and some of them will go under, some of them will get acquired and you won't see the purchase price announced. We're going to see a lot of that. There's a lot to unpack there. And the thing that I'm most uh, intrigued by is what this all means for the state of venture. And in particular, the last few years have been marked by so many new firms coming to the market, existing firms getting bigger and bigger. And if you look at the, uh, the world today, there's so many different segments. There's mega funds. There's crossover funds, micro VCs, solo GPs, nano funds, rolling funds, and it's hard as an LP. And I, you know, we talk to LPs all the time when they look at these three or four thousand active managers, identifying and assessing who's going to win. What's your take on the health of the venture market today? And are there areas that you think are going to do better and be more resilient? in the uh, years ahead. That's a two hour podcast right there in itself. Um, look, I think personally, I think it's the most exciting time I've ever seen. I mean, when I was raising money in the late nineties, there was one type of firm. It was the khaki pants, blue shirt, 45 year old white guy, former banker sitting in his glass office in Palo Alto, Menlo Park, who had all the control and all the leverage and really didn't give a fuck about you as a 25 year old entrepreneur. So I love the fact that over 20 years, we've evolved completely away from that model. And we now have founders who are investors. We have solo GPs that are investors. We have people investing their own capital. We have seed funds. And it's, it's such an interesting phenomenon. It's a little bit like what's happened in crypto. If you look at crypto, you know, I had a, a friend of mine asking me, do you think it will survive? And I said, I think it will. And it will be sort of like internet. It'll just morph into fintech and crypto will all be one. But what's really amazing is how the crypto ecosystem basically created an ecosystem to feed itself, right? Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum, and then you had the rise of all these different pieces of the puzzle and funds and Coinbase and others that fed the system until it got so big that the world has to take it seriously and our federal government has to take it seriously. It's been pretty, pretty awesome to watch over the last 10 years. And I think a little bit of what's happened in venture is, you know, not the, one of the most important things that happened in hindsight, was Sarbanes-Oxley. Because that caused private companies to stay private longer. And then really Facebook, the round that Facebook did with DST way back in 2010, I think it was, where they raised a billion dollars at something like 10 billion, really kicked off an era where companies said, gosh, maybe I don't have to go public when I'm a $50 million company. I mean, companies used to go public at 50 million ARR back in the 90s. And today you see companies going public at 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 million in, in revenue, and they're going public with 10 or 15 or 20 billion dollar valuations. That has then created a corresponding desire for capital around to the world to get access to that market. It's very natural. If companies stay private longer, the capital wants to invest 
earlier. It's not really earlier. It's money that would have gone to small cap hedge funds 20 years ago or mutual funds that could buy the next Amazon at $500 million valuation. Well, you can't do that today. That company stays private till it's worth 10 billion or 15 billion. So I think it's a very natural, you know, you look at venture funding today, it's over 100 billion a year. When I got into venture back in uh, 2008, I think it was maybe 30 billion a year in the US. And if you said, well, that seems crazy. Well, okay, just look at the number of companies that are staying private longer. And so it's to me, it's it's pretty natural. And then the fact that the industry diversified and created all these different models, I think it's amazing. It's a it's it gives me hope for our country because this engine that keeps funding entrepreneurs and ideas, and you have so many people pursuing it from so many different angles, right? You have solo GPs like an Elad Gill or folks like Ray Tonsing or or people like Satya and Hunter who created Homebrew. And then you have folks like Founders Fund that are you know, funding things that other people won't touch. You have Lux Capital funding hard research and AI and hardware. And if we just had one monolithic model where everybody was just looking for the next Facebook or Snowflake, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be very good for our economy or, or our country. And so I'm this the question you ask makes me more bullish than ever on venture and tech in that there are so many different ways that people are going about funding the next great founder. I'd say the only caveat I would add there is we need more diversity. We need more diversity in terms of the founders we back, the gender, the race, and the location. And I hope one of the things that comes out of this pandemic is the location and the geography, you know, the focus on Silicon Valley, New York, LA, Seattle becomes so much more broad. And we see tons of companies sprouting up in Denver and Salt Lake and Atlanta and Pittsburgh and all these other parts of the country. We're certainly seeing the employee bases spread out because of the pandemic. So the hope is people who have spread out as part of a company will then spin out and start a company in that area that they moved into, whether it's in Kansas or Atlanta or wherever. So I, I think the next... Um, you know, the post-pandemic analysis, the, the HBS case study on what happened with the entrepreneur ecosystem and venture post-pandemic, I think it's going to be pretty cool. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic about it than I've ever been. I would 100% ascribe to that optimism, too. And you're, you're right. You think about something like Sarbanes-Oxley, which for many people never even heard of. I mean, it was 20 years ago when it became a thing. And I mean, if you look at some of the companies that did go public in the 90s and Amazon, only 3% of the first 20 billion in market cap happened in the private markets. The rest was in the public markets and companies like Uber, look at Stripe. Stripe's a great example. Stripe, you know, maybe a $200 billion company today and is still a privately held company. And, and that's why we've seen so many crossover investors that were formerly all public come into the private markets because you have to, to invest in technology in, in the future, you really have to be in the private markets. Now, that still begs the question of, you know, when we look at venture and all these different categories, what are the ingredients that you need to win in whatever game you're playing, right? Because I, I think, look, the, you know, what you're doing or the, the type of investing model you have is going to require a different uh, skill set. It's going to require different strategy than somebody that's raising a $30 million fund or even a $10 million fund. Let's play a, a quick... Um, game here in terms of if you were to take over an endowment right now and you were tasked with creating a venture portfolio, how would you go about thinking about constructing a portfolio from scratch? Where are the areas that you'd focus most on? And what would you look at from the perspective of uh, underwriting VC firms in terms of future success? I, I would say, you know, to me, one of the interesting dynamics we have in the industry is some of the best returns come from fund ones, right? I, I'm, I'm personally an LP in a number of fund ones. I was lucky to be in Homebrew Fund One. I was lucky to be in Haystack Fund One, which is Samil Shah. I was lucky to be in One Confirmation Fund One, which is a crypto fund. The returns in those funds are, are exceptional, right? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50x type funds. The challenge for most large LPs is it's very hard to put a $1 million check in a $10 million fund. And if you put 10 million in, then you're the whole fund and that's not ideal either. So it's a really hard constraint for large LPs, particularly pension funds. And the reason pension funds gravitate towards larger firms, whether it's the PE side firms like Toma Bravo or TBG or the venture side firms like GGV or Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia is because they can put 100 million in and get 
you know, our historical return over 20 plus years is in the mid 20%. They can get great returns and, and do it with large amounts of capital. Now, it's hard for them to go fund those fund ones. So one thing I would potentially put out there is, can you come up with a model as a large institutional LP where you kind of like what we did with our discovery fund to get access to early stage entrepreneurs? Is there a model where you can do that? I don't know the answer to that. Um, and there are certainly some, you know, if you look at what Lyndall Eekman did with Foundry Group, he's tried to sort of bridge that gap, I think a little bit. But um, getting access to these fund ones, and a lot of these fund ones are also started by folks that didn't come out of traditional backgrounds. They're the more diverse type GPs. And so I'd love to see a way for large institutional LPs to be able to put more capital to work there. But there is that constraint that you're well aware of, of how do I put you know a million in a $10 million fund? And then you know the interesting thing is when those funds are successful, a lot of the large LPs say, oh gosh, I'd love to be in fund two or fund three or fund four. And by that time, the GP's sort of like, I don't really need you now. I'm 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 good. And I'm gonna carry the forward, you know, carry forward the folks that bet on me in fund one and fund two. So it's a really that's a really hard dynamic to solve for. Um I think, you know, from a how do you succeed as a firm standpoint, a couple of things I I would share. One, I don't think this is a game today because there's so much capital chasing, you know, a, a finite number of really, really exceptional founders and opportunities. You know, you probably remember 15, 20 years ago, there was like the partner emeritus title, you know, the partner at a firm that would spend his summers in Nantucket and, you know, maybe work a couple days a week. I don't think you can do that in today's market. I think you need to either be all in and hustling and working 24 seven and getting on planes to meet founders and getting on phone calls and doing board calls. And I just signed up for a dinner. You have to be all in. And certainly in our firm, we don't have a, there is no emeritus model. You're either all in or you're out. And it's, certainly sounds nice to only have to work two or three. I just don't think you can do it in today's market. I think it's too hard. There's too much hustle out there. And so we really try to tell our team, hey guys, you're either all in and you are working your ass off 24 seven and you're taking those phone calls and responding to those emails and doing everything you need to do, you know, or not, but there isn't a halfway model in our firm. And I think that's one thing that's changed in the last decade. The second thing is I think founders really value sector expertise. Um, you know, we are very sector focused. I focus on software. Glenn focuses on infrastructure and cybersecurity. Hans focuses on consumer. I think founders have started to realize that the generalist who sits on their board may not have that same flywheel of connections and introductions and capabilities to help them that somebody who's a specialist. And so I, I do think there's a lot of value in you know, for example, we're fo I have a focus on SMB tech. We love SMB tech. We were in Square. We were in Zendesk. We were in a whole bunch of, you know, I'm on the board of big commerce. When we invest in an SMB tech company like an Electric or a Slice or a Brightwheel, we can bring a whole bunch of relationships and ideas to that to that business model that, that they might not get from somebody who's a generalist. So I think those are two things that I've seen change in the last decade. One, sector focus. And two, the hustle and grind. I just think when you go from 30 billion in venture capital to 130 billion or whatever it is, 150 billion, it's it's more competitive. There's no, I don't think, and to be honest, it also makes when you go through a pandemic like we just went and everybody's working remotely and over Zoom, it's a pretty hard job. <laughs> like my Mondays start at eight and they end at like usually at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night on a Monday. And it, it's a it's a twenty four seven job if you want to win in this business. And and I think that's a great thing as a founder. But it has certainly, uh, hopefully, removed the image of the lifestyle VC from the '90s, kicking back in you know his or her recliner at their home in Nantucket during the summer. Yeah, I agree that it's going to be hard for any venture firm to sit back on their heels and expect to be successful. And even with the pullback right now, the best founders and companies are still getting plenty of options. One of the things I was really curious about is opportunities to generate alpha outside of the U.S. And given the current events of Ukraine and Russia and the talk of deglobalization, you do so much in China and Asia and, you know, more broadly. How do you think the recent events will affect investing internationally? And are there certain effects that likely will cascade down to the tech sector? There's sort of two elements to that. One is what points of view do you learn and generate from having a global firm? I think we benefit 
from seeing things at a very global level. We have people on the ground in India and Southeast Asia and China and the US. And so we see a lot of moving parts at a very ground level that not everybody sees. I think that's just helpful in general, right? To have that perspective is is beneficial to us as a firm. The trick is to then channel that into investing energy and making the right decisions on how we allocate our capital. And there are certain trends. If you if you think about like what, one thing that just boggles my mind is if you think about there's 7.3 billion people in the world, maybe 300 million own equities. In the US, it's like 125 million. And so if you assume Europe and other developed economies, it's maybe another 100 million. But you have billions of people around the world that have never invested anything that looks anything like the stock market. And so how big is that? Because if, if we all want that, and that's helped create wealth in our lives and our, for our families and our economy, I'm sure other people around the world want that. What's going to happen over the next decade as they have exposure to that opportunity, likely through crypto? And what will it do for those economies to have things like lending and borrowing? I mean, if you just look at one of the most basic things that makes our economy go, it's, it's, it's credit. That doesn't exist in a lot of economies, right? We're an investor in a company uh, called Tala that is providing credit to people in Africa. And one of the things that Shivani saw was that was one of the biggest gating items to their economy was there was no credit. There was no bank that you could walk into and say, I'd like to borrow $100 to start a business. You know, I think if we can continue to innovate as a U.S. economy, but watch those trends that have made our economy go and benefit us as a society, whether it's, you know, think about how we take for granted that you can walk down to an ATM and take money out of an ATM. That doesn't exist in a lot of the world. You can set up an appointment with a doctor via telemedicine, plush care, or accolade. That doesn't exist in a lot of parts of the world. So as those things, and by the way, those are all going to be driven by technology. So back to your point about assuming that technology is going to, is sort of inevitable. I think the funds that have exposure to those opportunities will do well. And, you know, in venture, it's us and Sequoia and Excel and others. And in the public markets, it's Fidelity and BlackRock and T. Rowe and you know, there are, those funds have hundreds of billions of exposure to these opportunities as well. So I just think, um, you know, the, the faster we can roll out those kinds of opportunities and those types of technologies to other parts of the world, the better. The flip side of it is what you said. We have this potential deglobalization because different governments have different views on how the world should work. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, you know, we've been in a 20-year cycle where everybody just assumed globalization was a good thing. And now we're saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, Germany's reliance on gas from Russia, maybe that isn't a good thing. And so I think we're just in the early innings of trying to figure out how that's all going to play out. Because obviously some very smart people made the decision that Germany should be relying on Russia for gas. And now they're having to reverse course on that decision. And we obviously have decisions like that in our country as well. And I just think it's going to be I think it's going to be really interesting to watch it play out. I hope it gets played out through government relations and not physical conflict. That's the only hope I have as a, a relatively mature American citizen, because I believe if if we can solve it through government relations, the the flow of technology into these other economies will ultimately... Look at what's happened with Elon Musk sending Starlink to Ukraine. I mean, such a you know, and as much as Elizabeth Warren and others like to bash Elon Musk, what if Ukraine didn't have internet access right now? And, and that's the only reason they do have internet access. All, all the news and information that we're getting about what's happening in Ukraine is coming via Starlink. That's incredible. And so I just think it's such a, and obviously us in the technology world are like, yay, go Elon, go Starlink. And there's other people are like, wait, why is that a big deal? Even things like SpaceX, how underrated is SpaceX and what, what we're doing with SpaceX right now? And you look at an entire industry like the auto industry that's being transformed. If if Elon, one of my favorite billboards used to be a Southwest billboard that said, if we didn't exist with low fares, if Tesla didn't exist, would the other car makers give a crap about EVs? I don't know. So I just think we're at such an interesting golden age for technology where if we can put capital behind the founders that have these incredible ideas the opportunities are going to be global and we're going to have to withstand, you know, like you said, right now we're going through this period where people are skeptical. They want businesses that are profitable. They're not willing to fund things that are two or three years out. And that's 
that's going to be a hard phase that we go through. And the companies that are well capitalized, including the ones that went public in the last few years that have a few hundred million or billion on their balance sheet, are going to be able to make huge forward strides. So the next Amazon, the next Tesla, you know, those companies now are the companies that went public in the last two years. And I'm super bullish. You know, if you're a public market investor, you want what just happened. You want the chance to go in and buy GitLab and HashiCorp and Snowflake and all these amazing companies at a much lower price than where they were six or nine months ago. If you're 70 years old and that was your retirement fund, then it's 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 pretty painful. But you and I both know, you know, if you had bought Salesforce in 2009, you're happy. If you bought Square after it went public, you're happy. If you bought, you know, Salesforce in 2005, you're happy. So now's a great time to be investing in these in these businesses if you have that five to ten year time horizon. And I think that's a completely logical way to view it. And of course, markets are governed by fear and greed. And investor psychology often is that when things are hot, people pile in, and then when they go down, people panic sell. And uh, you know, having a long term orientation is just tough, you know, and it, it can be difficult. But there does appear to be so many opportunities, as you mentioned, in the public market, some of the companies that you've alluded to, which have great fundamentals that over time will grow into maybe their valuations that they saw in 2021. But I also think that even beyond the companies that you mentioned, areas outside of the US are still interesting. And you see an area like LATAM, where if you look at the fintech sector, we've seen so much disruption and so many people don't have bank accounts there, let alone be able to borrow money. It seems like there's so many of those emerging markets that we'll see massive companies being built. And there's and there's never been more opportunities to bet on that, though. If you like Stripe, then you should love Delocal. You should love Adyen. You should love these companies going after emerging market economies with that same type of technology opportunity. You couldn't make that bet five years ago. There was nobody to bet on, right? And so to me, that's also what's exciting is you're, we're going to look back in a decade and people are going to say, oh my God, of course, Latin America was a huge opportunity. Of course, India was a huge opportunity. Of course, Southeast Asia was, you know, we're that we are going to say that it's just like you said right now we're in fear mode and it's funny i met with a friend yesterday and he was saying well what should i invest in right now and i said well what just know that whatever you buy right now might be lower in three months and that's a very scary place to be but if you have a five-year time horizon i think you're going to feel pretty good and that's just me having been through 2000 the great financial crisis i wish i had put my entire net worth in software and cloud in 2009 Knowing what I know now, I am being very aggressive when the market is down because I'm optimistic over the next five to 10 years. But man, it's painful every day when you log in and your account's all red. But you just kind of have to know that's part of the game. I've lost my password, you know, for all my birth. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably better for my mental health not to look at it. But like you, I have a very long-term horizon. I'm not really focused on the next two or three months. I'm looking at long-term accumul accumulation. And I do think that investing in technology and the best startups and the best uh, assets are we're going to be uh, served very well but there's so many great nuggets that you know we've talked a little bit about you know your advice uh to, to vcs on what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received i would say a, a couple things one the advice i give to most people is work with great people and don't overthink what it is you're doing. Yeah, I got that from the chairman of my company when I was selling it to VeriSign. And, you know, I ended up, like I mentioned, I ended up working with Mark McLaughlin, who was the, became the CEO of VeriSign and the CEO of Palatine Networks and somebody that I learned a lot from. But I never would have ended up there if I had overthought the opportunity and said, ah, do I really want to work for VeriSign, blah, blah, blah. And so I, that is my general advice to folks in their 20s is just find a great company, great people. If you get into that ecosystem, everything will take care of itself and you, you can't overthink it and overstress it. The other one that I got from my dad, whenever I had a moment where I was really stressed and as a founder, I started two companies, one which failed spectacularly and one which was a, a you know reasonably good outcome. And then in venture, I've had I've had years and time periods where I, I really was not doing as well as I would have liked. And I always got this sense from him of like, what's the worst that could happen? You do something else, you start another company, you, you know, and so I think if you can, if you can develop that mindset of the worst thing that happens to me is I start over, 
it get, you know, and, and, and Mike Lazaro, who was the founder of Body Media, created this amazing video after the company was acquired by Salesforce. It's worth watching if you never have. But, you know, Mike had this very serious life-threatening heart issue when he was, I think he was either in high school or college. And so he says, ever since then, I've just never, I'm like, what the worst thing that could happen is I die. But he said, everything else, I, I don't fear failure because I could have died when I was, I think he was 18 years old. That's an incredible way to go through life. And I'm not, I'm not as good as Mike at having that Zen mindset, but um, I do try to always maintain that thinking. And I think it's something that successful founders have is they know they can always go do something else. It's that time when you're the first time founder or you're 25 or you're 30 and you're early in your career and something's gone wrong. It's hard to get that perspective of like, hey, the, what's the worst thing that could happen? And so somewhere in between those, you know, work with great people and then try to develop that attitude of, you know, almost everything I'm doing is upside and I will power through this and I will find opportunity. And um, and then the other one is obviously just, you know, whatever you're going to do, just just go hard at it, right? You can be the best podcaster, the best VC, the best product manager, the best gymnast. I mean, if you just have that mindset of I am going to outwork and out hustle, it's amazing how many people in our industry would tell you that that's their secret to success. A lot of people in venture capital would tell you, I don't have a thesis on a particular industry or sector that is so much better than anyone else. I'm just willing to get on the plane, do the work, out hustle, out work. And it's amazing how often those people are successful. Yeah, it's great. It's great perspective. And I, I, I do love that aspect of what is the worst that can happen. I, I feel like in general, people are really good at underwriting risk and probably overestimating risk, but really poor at underwriting upside and thinking about Hey, if I take this risk, the downside probably not as bad as I'm making it in my head. And if it works, it's going to be really big and life changing. And I haven't seen the interview with Mike, but I'm I'm going to definitely check it out because, of course, Buddy Media was an incredibly successful exit for for him and his his investors. Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. I think we could spend hours talking about VC, <laughs> but I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Well, it's such an interesting time to have the conversation too, right? Given that's everything that's going on in the market and our business and tech in general. So thanks, man. I appreciate it and keep doing all you're doing. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jeff. To learn more about him or GGV Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detail notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.